Amen. Well, we are coming to the end of our sermon series. We've been in the books of First and Second Thessalonians to to the church of Thessalonica for a while now. I'm not even sure how long, a few months now. Um, it's been very so helpful for me personally to just spend that much amount of time in these letters just studying and preparing. Um, and hopefully I think so helpful for our church um, during this season of the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021. Um, we have one last section, and it is, not surprisingly then, a call to faithfulness. Uh, to not be idle, to, to deal with sin in the church, and to know the Lord. Not be idle, deal with sin and know the Lord. Um, and the, the sort of summarizing idea here is to be faithful. Be faithful always. Be faithful when it's smooth sailing. And be faithful when we come to rough waters. Times like this, this is sort of the trial of our day, of our generation, right? This pandemic and all that surrounding it, the social unrest and just the number of health issues we're facing, the losses we've experienced as a church. Be faithful in the midst of it. So turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 3. And we're going to finish the book starting at verse 6 going to the end of the chapter. And we read this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Not such person, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself Give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to know where we're going here today in this sermon, uh, the lengthiest section, 6 to 12, watch out for idleness. Idleness just basically means uh, laziness. Uh, Verses 13 to 15, deal with sin faithfully, and then finally know God's peace and his grace. Uh, So Paul in this next, this largest section in verse 6, deals with the issue of idleness in the church. Now you may remember in 1 Thessalonians, that was the first letter written, this is the second letter written to this church, he also talked briefly about the issue of idleness. And some people 
conjecture, so we don't know this for sure, but that this is due to the fact that there's such a focus on the return of Christ that some have quit their jobs and are just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. So that may be what is going on here. Uh, there were some very wealthy pagans, wealthy Greeks back, back then, and it wouldn't be a surprise if some of the others are taking advantage of the generosity of some within the larger church. Well, here's the point. It didn't go away. The issue was not dealt with between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. It's still an issue, and so he deals with it again, and it actually ends up spending quite a bit of time, a lot lengthier time, dealing with it in this second letter. The issue of idleness, a, a lack of work. Now, of course, of course he's talking about those who can work but choose not to. He's not talking about those who are sick, those who are injured, those who are elderly, Uh, He's not talking about those who have no option. Um, That is very clear that the church is called to help take care of those, to take care of widows in their needs and orphans. He's talking about those who are able-bodied but are choosing not to work and to just stay at home. And Paul says, when we were with you, meaning the missionary team, Paul and Silas and Timothy, we gave you an example so maybe Paul sort of, sort of saw this as an issue, as a potential issue when he was there. And he said, when we were with you, we worked. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. We had our jobs during the day and ministered at night or vice versa. <laughs> worked during the day, ministered at night, or ministered during the day and worked at night. Paul had a trade. His trade was a his tent maker, which sounds like a very unnecessary trade for today, necessarily. I mean, not too many tents are made. But back then, of course, there were a lot more tents out there in the desert region. Uh, Paul worked on his trade to pay for his food. He says specifically, we had the right, though. It's important. It's, he, he says this again and again in his different letters in the New Testament. It's not wrong to be paid for ministry. In fact, that's sort of the norm. This is the exception. So typically, a church would probably set aside someone or some people to devote full-time or at least part-time to ministering. So they're not sort of divided in their abilities. They have a family to take care of too, and so they can devote that time to ministry. And Paul is saying, I had every right to do that. I had every right to say, you know, I'm depending on you guys to feed me and to house me and to take care of me while I do this ministry. But we gave it up. We gave it up as, a, as an example to you of how to, to do the Christian life and work at the same time so you wouldn't fall into idleness. He says, actually kind of pulls out his apostle card here, his authority, and says, I command you. And when we were with you, we gave you this command not to be idle. In fact, we gave you the command, of, if someone doesn't work, let him not eat. <laughs> um, sounds harsh, doesn't it? Uh, very, very pragmatic command, though. Uh, nothing sort of motivates someone <laughs> to get a job and work like hunger. And again, we're not talking about someone who can't work. We're talking about someone who chooses not to. And he's saying, don't be foolish to provide for someone's idleness. Because what happens when you're idle, he says? They're not busy, so they fill the time doing something else. You've gotta, everyone's got 24 hours a day. Right? 60 minutes an hour and so forth. What, what are you going to do? And he says, instead of being busy, 
they become busybodies, which is actually a really good translation because in the Greek the two words are very similar. Um, so instead of staying working, they're going around gossiping and slandering and co- getting their nose in everybody's business. They're trying to do something with their time and it's causing problems. And he ends by saying, I, ends the section by saying, I urge you then to work quietly. We saw that in the first letter. You're not here to make a show of yourself and to earn your own living. And this is, none of this should be surprising. This is pretty consistent in all of the scriptures. Um, right from creation itself, God makes man and puts him to work. So it's not as if pre-sin, man was just sort of uh, sitting on a beach and sipping his drink and watching the waves, and then sin entered the world, and it's like, okay, Adam, get up and get to work. <laughs> no, right from the beginning, there was work. Why? Because it's, it's part of how God has made us. We need to work. Throughout the entire Old Testament and into the New, there's that work-rest balance. You work six days, you rest one. I remember saying, I think it was on a prayer time, I said, if you rest seven days a week, you're lazy. And that, for some reason, Teddy got a real kick out of that. So, um, but that's the, the, the balance in Scripture. Yes, of course there's rest, but there's work. Jesus worked. When he comes and is the ultimate example to us, he's a carpenter. Actually, he was likely a stonemason. There were a lot more need for stonemasons in Nazareth than carpenters. There weren't a whole lot of trees. (laughs) Uh, But there was a lot more uh, need for working with stone, following the example of his earthly father. Jesus said, my father, meaning his heavenly father, is working today and has always been working. So, How does God, who has no need for nutrition and energy, work? I don't know. But Jesus said he does. He is constantly working. It's it's natural to us to want to build or accomplish or do something with our day. And what happens when we don't? We lack purpose. We lack direction. We become busybodies. (laughs) We find something to do with our time, and it's usually not good. Uh, by the way, this mentality, sometimes called the Protestant work ethic, um, has really played itself out throughout church history. Um, a lot of people would say that the prosperity of the United States was built on the, the Puritans and their, their intense work ethic, which actually kind of maybe worked against them because the following generation, uh, after the Puritans, their children uh, experienced the prosperity that was brought by their parents and ended up really kind of beginning to walk away from the Lord and things began to get lost in the generation following. But we're called to work. Work with all your heart. If you're a nurse, you're you're a nurse to the glory of God. If you're a lawyer, you do it to God's glory. If you're a tradesman, you do it with all your heart. If you're retired, there's nothing wrong with retiring. There's nothing wrong with saying, I'm taking a step back from my job, but I'm going to find other ways to work and to serve. And friends, this is part of our witness as Christians, is how we go about our jobs. Uh, This is a little bit of a lengthy example, but it's a good one from G.K. Beale. He writes, he says, An executive at a London corporation would often pass by an office where several typists worked before the computer error. The executive noticed that one particular woman was more diligent in the way she typed, working faster and taking fewer breaks than the others. And after a few weeks, he asked a friend at work why she was so unusually industrious. 
The friend responded, oh, that's Mildred. She is a Christian. The executive pondered this and after a few more weeks asked the typist herself why she worked in such an indefatigable manner. She responded, oh, I'm a Christian and I serve Christ. I work heartily for him and not merely for my human boss. This conversation led to the executive investigating the faith further and eventually becoming a Christian. A few years later, he was speaking at a church about his conversation. And someone in the church became a Christian through this address. This person has now become a prominent theologian and enjoys talking about this typist as an illustration of how the faith of Christians as it is expressed through ordinary work in every walk of life, is vital for the witness of the gospel. We work to the glory of God. So the application here, I think, is pretty straightforward. Watch out for idleness. I think especially maybe during this pandemic, uh, which Lord willing is continually moving towards a close, but with quarantining, with the large amount of unemployment, with a number of folks working from home, I think there is a greater temptation, perhaps, to idleness. God has given each of us a job. Your job, first and foremost, for those who have a family, is to take care of your family. If you are a spouse, it's to take care of your spouse. If you're a parent, to take care of your kids. That's your first job. It's even more important than that job that puts the, pay, that pays, puts the food on the table, is to be there for your family. For many of us, God's given an employment, an actual job to go to, to try to do well with it, to contribute to the greater help of society, but not only that, to provide for your family. Then he's called us to serve our local church. He's gifted everyone with a unique gift set to serve in some form of ministry. And then he calls us to serve in the community. We're to be good citizens who serve, who volunteer, who get involved as salt and light. Certainly, friends, we're called to help those who need it. I think that's an underlying application here. There are some who can't work for a wage. Maybe they're at a time in which they're sick or they're elderly, and there's nothing wrong with the idea of a welfare system that cares for those who are in need. There's one more application before we move on, and that is spiritual idleness. I think there's a connection between the two. If we tend to be lazy at one then we're probably going to end up lazy at the the next. We get idle when it comes to reading the scriptures, to to daily prayer, to attending a church, to staying involved in a community group. And no doubt, friends, when we become idle in one, it often leads to the other. Paul then continues in verses 13 to 15, not only watching out, not only called to watch out for idleness, but how you then deal with sin. In the church, and he says basically to deal with sin faithfully. Now he's talking here specifically about the sin of idleness, but it's broader. It applies to how we deal with sin in general. Uh, he says here, first of all, you don't grow weary in doing good. So that's the first thing. Uh, stay busy, actively serving the Lord. Uh, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but that grace transforms us as new men and new women who serve him. Keep working at your job. Keep doing generally good work. But then he mentions here, specifically, if someone doesn't obey this, what should you do? And the first thing he says is take note of it. Uh, That's important. Take note of the fact that there is a sin issue going on. 
We'll come back to that. And he says, have nothing to do with him. That sounds a little harsh, but I'll explain that a little bit more. And he's talking here ultimately about church discipline. And he says that he may be ashamed. The goal is always to lead someone towards repentance. The shame leads someone to turn back to the Lord and be restored. That's always the goal. It's never vindictive. It's never bitterness and anger. It's always to restore someone. And then this helpful reminder, don't regard him as an enemy. He's not your enemy. Warn him as a brother. In fact, he's called a brother throughout this whole section. He's still your brother or your sister in Christ. My friends, he's talking about how the church in Thessalonica is to deal with sin. It's a good, helpful sort of advice for us. First, take note of it. Uh, don't just ignore it. So easy for a church to say, we don't really talk about sin here. <laughs> right? Uh, we, just, we, just, we just sweep it under the rug. Um, you know, some, there was one famous uh, preacher on television. They asked him, how come you never talk about sin? He said, I don't really want to focus on sin. I just want to focus on the good stuff. You don't have that choice <laughs> as a pastor. That's what we're called to do, to follow the scriptures. Uh, certainly taking note of it would mean teaching and preaching it, to identify sin to be sin. Again, it's not vindictive judgment, but it's to recognize what is pleasing to God and what is not. And then there are measures to be taken to bring someone to repentance. This idea of uh, don't associate with them, to separate from them, sounds, again, a little, a little cold here. Uh, but actually, uh, this is where the commentaries really help. Um, that word is only used once in the entire New Testament, right here. Uh, so what is he getting at? Well, it's used in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. Remember, it's written in Hebrew, but later translated uh, so it's used there, and it's used specifically, uh, Hosea 7, 8 would be an example. Uh, Ephraim, now the name for Israel, mixes himself with the peoples. So the idea here is it's not just uh, say hi, how you doing as you pass someone in the grocery store. That's not what he's getting at. It's a intermingling, a deeper fellowship. And what he's saying here is when someone is caught into a sin, and again, he says walking in idleness, not someone who just has a lazy day where they sleep in. That's not what he's getting at. But this is a pattern in their life. There is a helpful separation. There is not that deep fellowship, perhaps, that you once had. And why? One, to protect your own soul, but also, as he says here, to help bring them to repentance. Sin is like a disease. It's like someone with a cold. Right? If you ignore it, you do nothing about it, it just gets worse. It, it, no, sometimes it needs to be treated. And if you do nothing about it, it also is contagious and can spread. church needs to recognize it and then take measures for it. But so helpful as a reminder, don't see them as an enemy. Don't fall into the sin of hypocrisy. Yourself. Don't demonize this person. Help them. That's our goal. They're a brother. They're a sister. They're a struggling sibling <laughs> that you're called to help. Let's be a faithful church when it comes to this, friends. First of all, that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Uh, there's no sense in pretending like, they're, like anyone is not a sinner. <laughs> that's, the, that's just the sin of hypocrisy. We all need help. We are the hospital for sinners, not the museum 
for saints, right? We are here to help one another out of sin um, and addictions and so forth, to recognize that there are sinful tendencies in our lives and we're called to care for each other. That's by the way, we're happy to host AA. I believe there's going to, the Just Church is going to be starting a, a Celebrate Recovery soon. We're happy to say we're, we're a place where we want those who are struggling to come to to find help. Let me just add this too. I think patience is on our side when it comes to helping someone out of sin. Now, granted, there are certain sins that we get right on. If there is an issue of abuse, uh, then we, that's not a sin you wait on. You jump right in and you protect those, anyone who is in danger. And certainly I've counseled people who are in that scenario, someone who's being abused by a spouse or something or a boyfriend, and yes, right away you jump in and something needs to be done. But more often than not, time is on your side. It takes time for people to spiritually mature. They don't become spiritually mature on day one, right? They're going to work through their sin. And ultimately what you're doing is you're prayerfully praying and asking for the Spirit of God to do that conviction. Not you. Let God's Spirit do that conviction to lead them towards repentance and faith. But friends, it's so wise for us to be clear about what sin is, that it's destructive in my life, in your life. Address it, talk about it, but always do so to help and to care for one another. We come to this last section, to know the God of peace and grace. To know the God of peace and grace. How are we faithful? First of all, we're faithful to deal with idleness, to, to not be idle yourself, to deal with sin in the church, but then to turn to the God of peace and grace. He ends with a benediction. He's given a number of benedictions in this letter, which again is a request to God. It's a prayer to God. May the Lord do something. So he's asking God for something. And he ends by talking about peace and grace. May he, may the, first of all, he calls him the God of peace. God is so defined by peace that he can actually be called the God of peace. The God of shalom. And shalom again is far more than the absence of conflict. In a world without sin and conflict, you can still have shalom. It's wholeness, it's fullness, it's completeness, it's being who you should be in the eyes of God. But notice what he says, may the Lord of peace give you peace. And then he qualifies it, at all times and in every way. That it transcends our circumstances. That we can have peace when we are feeling healthy and strong. (laughs) And we can have peace when we're feeling sick or injured. We can have peace when the economy is booming. And we can have peace when we're unemployed. We can have peace when all seems to be going well. We can have peace in the midst of grief. At all times and in every way. How so? The Lord be with you all. Because the presence of the God of peace who's with us. His spirit is with us. And there's nothing wrong, as you can see here, to ask for God's presence. Yes, God is everywhere. Yes, God is already present. But to ask for his presence in a very special sense. May the Lord be with you all. Paul writes here that he's writing this with his own hand. So, 
was very typical in that time for someone to dictate a letter, so they're speaking it, someone else is writing it down. But Paul, of course, was literate, he was a rabbi, he grabs the pen at the end, and he basically puts his signature on at the end. He says, I write this with my own hand, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter. He probably wrote very large, because one letter he says, see what large letters I write. Um, Why? We read earlier that there's a fake letter. Uh, don't be alarmed by some letter as having come from us, right? So there's a fake letter going around. Paul wants to make sure, no, this is the real deal. This is the legitimate letter from me. And then he ends, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The unmerited favor of God. That's how the Christian life is lived, depending upon his grace. Peace and grace, friends, that's That's the Christian life. That represents the whole of the Christian life right there, right? That fullness in God, in the midst of trial, turmoil, or whatever else. Um, By the way, this is a prayer, right? May we have peace in every way, in all circumstances, at all times. Uh, We don't have it. That's why we need to pray for it. So uh, if you're sitting there, Pastor Rick, I'm not even close to having peace all the time. I don't blame you, and I don't either. Um, you know, in fact, I realized I have far more stress, I think, in my life than I should. And where's my trust in the sovereignty of God? But this is a request that we would grow towards having peace at all times and in every way. And that we recognize that God's grace comes to us in Jesus. Every blessing, every good thing, everything you have in life, and especially those things that surround your salvation, it's a gift. It's a gift. You don't deserve any of it. I don't deserve any of it. We didn't earn any of it. It's God giving us. God gave us life. He pours out all of the blessings of life on us. And he saves us from our sin and promises us eternal life. As I mentioned, we're here in Lent. This is a good time to be meditating on the grace of God, what Jesus has done for us. He died for us. He rose from the dead for us. Just some final thoughts on Thessalonians here as we come to the very end of it. First of all, uh, just these are things that have hit me in studying this here, but that we're not the first to suffer. So this was a hard year, this last year of life um, for our church. It's been a tough year. Um, we're not the first to suffer. We, we've seen suffering throughout church history. Christians have always suffered, oftentimes far worse than us. Um, and yet this calling to endure. Just endure. Persevere. Keep going through hard times. Keep trusting the Lord in the midst of it. Uh, this idea of hope. That hope matters. Um, you know, I think that th- there was a, throughout most of the church and most of its history, there was more of a focus on the return of the Lord. I think we tend to want to focus on better times ahead in this world. And there's nothing wrong with that. We certainly can ask for that. But friends, let's never forget the ultimate Christian hope. Let's never forget that calling to Maranatha, right? Come, Lord Jesus, return for your people. That's what our ultimate expectation is. Uh, Prayer. I mean, all these benedictions, all these calls to prayer. Uh, Hopefully this season we're praying, but more than that, hopefully after the season is over, we're continuing to pray. And of course, as we just talked about today, again, working, working hard. Don't be idle. Keep at it. Stay on top of it. And soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. Don't be idle. Be faithful. Watch out for idleness in your own life. Deal with sin faithfully. 
helping one another and know the Lord of peace and grace. You know, I think it hits me as we look towards the next sermon series, which is going to be focusing on the cross and the resurrection. All this, all this, Paul and his team, Timothy, Silas, going to a place that they would not normally go to, traveling to the city of Thessalonica, being persecuted and being chased out of town. And these Christians who now follow Jesus and are meeting regularly with their own lives, being threatened and are facing persecution, him taking the careful time to write these letters, 2,000 years of church history of Christians around the world uh, being reached for Jesus, many, many of whom are suffering and faithfully serving the Lord and trusting him. The fact that I'm here preaching right here, right now to you guys today, all of this because of a Galilean carpenter named Jesus. who in his own life changed the world. He came on the scene totally surprisingly. By the way, Jesus barely ever left his country. He went on the outskirts, the Decapolis, but barely even left his country. Never wrote a book. Never held a political office. came as the Galilean carpenter, lived a life of perfect love, suffered on the cross, died as a ransom for sinners, and rose in triumph over the grave. Friends, this season, let's keep our eyes on him. Especially this season. Let's trust that he has come for us. He calls us to be faithful into the day he returns. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ and then the peace, the shalom that you give us as those who are Christ. Help us to be faithful, Lord. We're going to mess up, we're going to fail, we're going to make mistakes, but help us, Lord, to not be idle, to deal with sin, to know you, the God of peace and grace, to grow in godliness and to grow in hope of eternal life. But Lord, in all this, help us to keep our eyes set on Jesus, the one who has come to save and redeem his people, the one who has come for us. And especially during this season, heading up to the great celebration of Easter, Lord, we remember our Savior. Remember his sacrifice for us, that our sin is paid for in full because of him. And we are yours forever. So even as we begin to turn our attention to communion, Lord, help us to remember his body broken, his blood shed in behalf of us so that we could be yours not just in this world, seeking to be faithful, but for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.